I'm curious, you can put your hand up if you, if you recognize this name, because I think uh, many of us may not. Uh, anybody recognize the name Desmond Doss? Oh, we got one Desmond Doss. Oh, a couple. Okay, Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was a, um, uh, in fact, I believe the first conscientious objector to receive a Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, he was Seventh-day Adventist and as such uh, believed that he could not take a weapon into war. That did not mean, however, that he didn't feel like he wanted to do his part in World War II. And so he, uh, he entered the army as a conscientious objector, went through boot camp all while refusing to even hold or learn to use a weapon and became a medic. To say that the other soldiers hated him would be an understatement. They mocked him, ridiculed him, at one point in time I believe even beat him, attempted to court-martial him, and he stuck it all out. One pastor I know of shared a story of a, uh, a soldier uh, in, in boot camp, so maybe not yet a soldier, who was a Christian and decided that prior to uh, going to bed every night, no matter what the day was like, he would pray and read his Bible. This did not fit well with the culture of, uh, of his other, whatever it is, whatever grouping he was in there in boot camp. He was also mocked. One night, a, um, uh, one of the other recruits in, in the bunk uh, took his boots and threw them at the young man as he was reading his Bible and praying. The next morning, the soldier who threw his boots found them polished and at the foot of his bunk. The reality is that Jesus was hated in much the same way. He, he did not fit in to his day and age, and, and Christians often don't fit in to the cultures and the places that they live. And in fact, I think what John is warning us of here is, is what, if our lives do fit the world, something is wrong. As we come to this eighth vital sign, we find here in the book of 1 John that conflict with the world, conflict with those who do not know Christ is something that we can and should expect. And if there is, this by the way, is, is maybe a, a bit of a backwards vital sign. As we look at, at this book of 1 John and see the indications of genuine faith, this is not something any of us are probably all that excited about. I don't know about you, but when I read Acts and I read the epistles and, and I see the, the epistles being letters, the letters to the churches, and I see these men rejoicing at the privilege of being beaten and persecuted and shipwrecked and crucified and stoned, I'm like, I am not that guy. It, it, I marvel at, at that, uh, that faith. Really, it's not a faith problem, by the way. It's not that we lack faith. It's that we lack grace. And that's not an insult. These men were called to be persecuted and martyred for their faith. And God gave them the grace to endure that. And should he call us to that, he'll give us the grace to endure as well. 
And so it's not a, a matter of comparing faith. It's not that they had greater faith than we do. It's that the grace of God matched the circumstances in their lives. But I read that and I see that and I go, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to rejoice when I'm persecuted. I complain far too much when, when there's trouble or when things are difficult. But Jesus was treated much the same way. If you remember in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. He makes some mud, he puts it on his eyes, and, and he, this young man is able to see, and the Pharisees are angry. And they're not angry that he healed the man. They're not angry that he made him see. They're angry that he did it on the Sabbath, that he violated their traditions, that he violated their uh, ways of doing things. And so the Pharisees... Religious leaders, not, not only religious leaders, religious leaders who sought to worship the one true God persecuted Jesus. It wasn't just what Jesus did that led to this, it was also what he said. In John chapter 6, verses 66 through 67, Jesus has just fed massive amounts of people. There's tens of thousands, probably more than 10,000 people following him, listening to him, seeing what he has to offer. And then he teaches something really hard. He says, you know, I fed you with bread, but really, I'm the bread of life. And you have to eat my flesh in order to have life. Now, certainly he was not talking literally of eating his flesh, but, but he was teaching hard things about the fact that they were dead in their sin and they needed to, by faith, participate in his life in order to receive forgiveness. And it was a hard teaching. And when, the, when it was over, the crowd disappears. Jesus would have been a horrible televangelist or church planter by today's standards. He could clear out a crowd faster than anybody. So many people were gone that he basically looks, and it's not just the crowd that left, many of his disciples, not the 12, but many of his disciples outside of that left as well. And he looks at them and he says, are you guys going too? And they're like, we don't have anywhere to go. Somewhere along the way, the church has picked up this ideology and started to believe that the evidence of being a good church or a good Christian is that the world will love you. But that's not in, in Scripture. That might happen. That's not forbidden in Scripture. But it's never presented to us as a measure of, of doing things well. If, if the measure of a church, and of a ministry is that the world loves it, Jesus was an absolute failure. What John is telling us here, and what was true for Jesus, is that at some point, the world is going to hate us. The world is going to find us offensive. Now, I want to give a disclaimer here. There is a tremendous difference between offending somebody and being offensive. God's word offends. I mean, I've been walking with the Lord for about 35 years. Um, I've, I've been a serious student of scripture for about 20, uh, maybe a little more, and I'm still regularly offended by God's word. 
it assaults me. It assaults my pride. It, it assaults the idea that I sit on the throne of my life. It, it assaults the idea that I'm at the center of things and God exists for me and, and for my good and not me for him and for his glory. The message of the cross is offensive. And sometimes when we share truth with people, people are going to be offended. Or maybe sometimes it's just living out our lives the way Scripture calls us to live them out. We're going to offend people. But that does not mean that we should be offensive. Jesus was offensive because he spoke the truth, not because he was a jerk. In fact, he was incredibly kind, and even in his kindness, he offended people. And so out of this text today, I want to share two reasons with you all why Christians will have conflict in the world. Two reasons why Christians will have conflict in the world. And the first is simple. The world hates our message. The world hates our message. This is found in verse 11. Look with me. For this is the message. And notice that it's not just a message. It's the message that you heard from the beginning. I've said frequently, whether it was in relational elder training or whether it was uh, in the interview process, I'm not interested in new things. I'm interested in very, very old ones. That doesn't mean that sometimes in our ministry there aren't new methods to employ. Um, you know, we don't have to be like the Amish and ride around in buggies, which was new technology at some point, by the way. Um, we can use the internet, we can use technology. I have no problem with any of those things. But when it comes to the message of God's word, we're looking for very, very old things. New doctrines, new teachings should automatically cause us suspicion. This is why historical theology is helpful. Not because it's authoritative, as some churches teach, but understanding what the church has believed for the last 2,000 years can be helpful to us. Because really, even though we have new means and methods for study and for ministry that we can employ sometimes, the message is the message that we heard from the beginning. And the first believers to us here today had the same access to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And thus, we should, we should value what they believed. It should inform us. We should, we should care how they thought about God's word. But this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. It is not a changing message. It is an eternal message. And it is a message that we should love one another. Of course, we know the first commandment is not to love one another. The first commandment is to love God and then to love one another. But what is the message that we heard from the beginning. Well, uh, some of us uh, were at um, a conference on, on Thursday in Spokane, and, uh, and Jim Shaddix was the speaker there, and I really appreciated what he had to say. And, and he kind of talked a little bit about this, about the offensiveness of our message. And he kind of put it in some simple uh, terms. And he said, of course, you don't talk to people this way, but think about it. The message that we share is that you're a sinner, unacceptable to God, and on your way to hell. But... If you will simply put your full faith and confidence in a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago, who rose from the dead, and oh, who by the way was also God, God will forgive you, you'll be on your way to heaven, you're good to go. In terms of eternity, we certainly know there's more than that to the Christian life. But can we not hear from a worldly perspective, he was speaking from 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul calls this message, at least according to the world's perspective, foolishness. 
you want me to trust in a guy I can't see who lived 2,000 years ago in order to get me to heaven? Because you think something's wrong with me? That might be the most offensive part of our message to people. Our message is not one that is loved by the world. Yes, that's exactly what I want. I want you to understand that you are a sinner. that You have broken God's law. That the just penalty is death. Wait a minute, death? Uh, that seems awfully harsh. No, it doesn't. It doesn't? Why not? Because us creatures made from the dirt dare defy the holy God. The, the, the wonder here is not that God would kill us. The wonder is that on day one, he didn't. And then he provided his own son. And his son died in our place. And in great love for us, called us into relationship with him through faith. You can't earn it? Well, yes, I can. I got to do something to earn it. You don't deserve it? Yes, I do. I'm generally a good person. God just provides it. No, no, I got to do something. I got to do something to earn it. This is nonsense. This is nonsense to the therapeutic culture that we live in that says if you'll just get a little help from somebody, look inside you, sort out what's junk, find the good stuff in you, everything will be all right. I'm not saying therapy isn't helpful at some point in time, but I will tell you this, therapy has never been the cure for the common condition, and that is sin. Only Jesus is the cure for that. The world hates our message. This begs a hard question, if you would permit me to ask it of us all. Do you share that message enough to be hated by anyone for it? I think that's a great question, not only of our lives individually, but our lives as a church as a corporate body. Are, are there, have I lost relationships, friendships, acquaintances because I spoke the truth of God's word to people and somebody was offended by it? I'm not asking you to want that. Never asking you to want that. But if we prioritize our, our comfort over somebody else's eternal state, can we really say that the next part of this verse, that, that we love one another? Can I say, I love you, but I don't mind if you go to hell? I love you, but I love my comfort more, and so I'm not going to share anything that you might, might be offensive to you, or might hurt your feelings, or might cause you to reject me. The world hates our message. But not just our message. The world hates our lifestyle. The world hates our lifestyle. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. It's not enough that we have an offensive message. 
we, we're not, we don't only believe you're supposed to love God. We believe that you are to love people. People who disagree with you, you are to love. People who hate you, you are to love. People from different political parties, different skin colors, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We're to love everybody. We're not, this is, again, a foreign message in a world that says, if you disagree with me, you get canceled. If you disagree with me, you get shut down. The world that we live in today is more inclined to say, I can't even have a conversation with somebody who disagrees with me. Oh, we can't be those people. We can't be those people. We can't be those people who aren't willing to, to love people and have conversations with people and tell people the truth of the gospel just because they, they look or act differently than we do. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, Logan, this doesn't make sense. You're telling me that the world hates love? Yes, I am. The world hates love. And let me give you three reasons why the world hates love. Number one, God defines what love is. God defines what love is. And in God's word, when God defines love, I'm particularly thinking of 1 Corinthians 13 here, uh, it is always described in terms of what it does. It's described in terms of how it's act, how it acts. In 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul describes love, and by the way, in 1 Corinthians, when he does describe love, he's gone through 12 chapters of incredibly broken problems in the church in Corinth. And he doesn't offer us chapter 13 uh, just for the sake of use at weddings and marriage conferences. No, he offers 1 Corinthians 13 as the, the, the fix for all of the broken ways that those churches are acting towards one another. Sexual immorality needs love. Division and divisiveness needs love. Factiousness needs love. Abusing spiritual gifts for one's own personal glory needs love. Even a culture in 1 Corinthians where, and we see it, where, uh, where it was acceptable for men to pretend like they were women and women to pretend like they were men needed love in the context of the church as, as the fix. And when God does define love, he doesn't just define it in terms of, uh, of, um, of adjectives, of describing words. All 15 attributes of love in 1 Corinthians 13 are verbs. Biblically, love is always defined by what it does. We, we kind of have ended up thinking that if we love people, we're just going to permit them to do whatever. I can think of a couple instances where my children, when they were young, reached for something on a hot stove or a hot stove itself. And I can promise you that my thought that ran through my head as they went through this is, oh, I love them so much I have to let them make this choice. No, when people do, when, when people are inclined to behave and act and live in ways that is destructive to them, love compels us to step in and say, wait a minute, this is destructive. A friend of mine was at a party one night. One of his friends was drunk, uh, kind of making a, a, a mess of himself on the front yard and acting silly, and he thought, ah, I'm just going to leave him alone. 
The man climbed up on the roof of a car, fell down, and took an antenna right through the eye. Love would have compelled him to step in. Love would have compelled him to say, this is not good for you and this is not going to end well. So number one, God defines what love is. The world does not like that. Number two, God defines how we are to love. This proceeds out of what I've already shared, but scripture is clear that we cannot love people apart from the truth. I've been accused of not being loving to people because all I do is share the truth with people, which is an exaggeration. But I don't know how to love people apart from truth. I don't know how to love people apart from what God's word says love is and what's good for people. I can't tell people, you know, I I love you, but I'm content to let you be miserable. I love you, but I'm content to let you destroy your life or family. I love you, but I'm, I'm content to let you glory in mediocre things. I love you, but I'm content to let you go to hell. God defines how we are to love, and we love with grace and truth. And number three, and maybe this is more for us than others, we're to prioritize love in the church. We're to prioritize love in the church. We should do uh, we, we, should, we should be more concerned about the loving, unified, gracious, kind relationships inside this fellowship of believers than those without. We should be more concerned with conflict in the church than conflict without. We've been promised conflict outside of these walls. We've been commanded not to have conflict in these walls. John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not by if we have love for them. That's commanded too. But we're never told that the evidence of our salvation will be our love for the world. We're told that the evidence of our salvation is our love for each other. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. How are we doing in the church on these matters? Are you willing to work out differences, disagreements, conflicts, fights, whatever? This is something that was revolutionary to me. Matthew 18, chapter 15. This is where we find uh, the the instructions on uh, correcting somebody in sin. But uh, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, John says, if your or Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault. And so if somebody has offended you, you have a responsibility to go to them and work it out. And if they hear you, then you've won your brother. This is not licensed to be petty, by the way. Notice he doesn't say, if your brother offends you, go tell him his fault. I mean, maybe, maybe that's the language there, but, but what I, let me rephrase that. He's not saying if I'm bothered by your actions, but if somebody has sinned, that's the context of Matthew chapter 18. If I've been sinned against, then I, I'm to go to that person and to work it out with them. But then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, we're told that if you are offering your gift at the, altering and, at the altar and realize that you have offended someone else, leave your gift, go make it right, and come back. 
So in Matthew 5, if you're the offending party, you have a responsibility to go and work it out. Here's the bottom line. Whether somebody has offended you or whether you have offended somebody else, you are required to be the person who goes. It doesn't matter which side of the equation you're on. We go and we work things out. Either way, we're obligated. Do you work things out with people? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, is a, a, a passage that's been, I've been thinking a lot about lately, I mean for several years now, but this is where Paul begins to express instructions to the church, and he tells us here that we are to be eager, that's in the word in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But this word eager is a strong word. Uh, let me share some other passages where the same Greek word um, is, is used. Um, I had a passage in 1 Peter, um, but it's the wrong, I put the wrong passage in here. So I'll skip down to 2 Peter 3.14. Uh, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent. Um, in, uh, man, I, I left out several references. Uh, if you have any um, involvement or knowledge of AWANA, you know that AWANA is an acronym that has stood for uh, Approved Workmen Are Not Ashamed. It comes out of Paul's instructions to Timothy where he says, do your best to present yourself as a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The, the word do your best in that passage is the same Greek word. To be diligent, to make every effort, to do your best. In fact, the root of that word is to run or to haste towards. And then it's a strengthened. Make great haste towards unity, towards peace. And then, uh, well, the, 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 um, the culture and our sin natures, by the way, Everything inside of us and everything we see in the world going on around us right now is going to tell us to run away from that. Don't go make peace. Don't, don't, don't work things out. The world hates our message. But when we live like Jesus lived, righteous lives, loving lives, the world is going to hate us as well. And I think we see why in this story of Cain and Abel. I don't mean story by, as in made up. I mean story as in historical account. So turn with me quickly and we'll, uh, we'll wrap up looking at this here uh, of, in Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 because we kind of get this uh, prototype picture of relationships, okay? So uh, chapter 4 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible starting in verse one says, now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Cain was a shepherd, or Cain was a, a farmer, and Abel was a shepherd. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, I, 
this obviously we're going to see is not an acceptable offering. In fact, let's just keep reading. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and out of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, Genesis chapter 4 doesn't tell us why God regarded uh, Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering. But I think, uh, I'm pretty convinced based upon Genesis chapter 3, that the reason was that it was an offering of fruit and not an offering of an animal. Uh, In Genesis chapter 3, the previous chapter, when Adam and Eve sinned, God had promised in the day you eat of the fruit that you will surely die, and something was going to die that day. But instead of Adam and Eve dying, God killed a lamb, and he clothed their sinfulness in the skin of that lamb. This would be a picture of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ who would come and die in our place and in whose righteousness we would be clothed. But what was demanded that day was that something die. And and so what we see here, either way, whether it's that it was fruit and not uh, blood or something else, there was two things wrong with uh, with this offering here. There was a problem with the offering itself. As I said, I, I think it should have been a sacrifice of blood, not of produce, but also there's something wrong with the offerer. He probably didn't want to have to go to his brother and buy something from him in order to be able to sacrifice it. I don't know that to be true, but maybe it's true. Uh, Maybe he just didn't want to do things God's way, but his offering was not regarded. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell, as in like, His countenance fell. It's a picture of of his attitude for us. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. The, The picture here is like a lion ready to pounce and devour Its desire is contrary to you. Its desire is against you. Sin's desire is to consume you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, a command that's impossible, by the way. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And killed him. Cain's heart wasn't right. He wanted to come to God on his own terms. He wanted to bring his own sacrifice, and he wanted to bring it in his own way. Just because the sacrifices that God calls us to bring are different today, don't believe this is not an easy trap for us to fall into as well. Lord, I want to come to you on my terms, in my way, on my timing, with my music and my preferences the way I like to do things. We, we do the same thing today, just with a different set of sacrifices. And two, so Cain's heart wasn't right. Cain's offering wasn't right. Fruit, not blood. And so Cain killed Abel. Cain canceled Abel. Our lives might not be on the line yet, but the world would love to cancel us. 
I think some Christians who really want to deny the necessity of the gathering of the church are kind of helping it along the way. The world hates our message. It hates our actions. It hates what we stand for. And why is it? It's because our lives stand as an indictment against them. People who are steeped in sin don't want to be around people who are not. Because our lives stand against them. It shows them what what they ought to be and are not. And so our message offends the world. But when we live holy and righteous lives to God, when we don't make a practice of sinning, as we saw from 1 John, the world really begins to become uncomfortable with our lives as well. We get, I mean, we've all heard it, right? You, you might get called a goody two-shoes or a do-gooder. Why doesn't anybody like to be, you, you know, why don't they want the goody two-shoes around? Why don't they want the do-gooder around? Because it makes them feel guilty about their own actions. The world hates our message and the world hates our lives as well. But here's the catch. Cain was not outside of the worship of God. He brought a sacrifice. He went to the Lord. He just had the wrong heart and the wrong sacrifice. The church that John writes to here is full of false teaching. It's not just the world outside these doors that's going to hate us. Sometimes when the world comes inside these doors, it's going to hate us too. And I'm firmly convinced, and I don't have time to explain this today, but in 2 Corinthians and 1 John, I think it's pretty clear that one of the tactics of Satan is to plant the world in the church to stir up division and strife and conflict and hatred and to ruin our testimony, to make us the least offensive people possible. Look at verse 13. And we'll close with this thought. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The surprise should come when the world loves us, not when the world hates us. The surprise should come when the world will receive us, not when the world hates us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you, when, you re- when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed? How is that blessed? How is it blessed, Jesus, to be reviled and persecuted and have evil things said against us falsely, simply because we follow you on your account? Well, it shows to what kingdom we belong. It reveals to us where our homeland is. If your life, if who you are, how you live, how you conduct yourself, how you entertain yourself, how you speak is completely uh, non-offensive to the world around you, if you are comfortable with the world and the world is comfortable with you, this vital sign in your life is flatlined. Now, this doesn't mean, as I've already stated, that there can't ever be places, you know, where, where, where we're comfortable. I, I, comfortable is the wrong word. But it doesn't mean that we're going to be hated everywhere we go. But if we're hated nowhere we go, 
Maybe it shows what world we belong to. Are you comfortable in the world? Are you comfortable with its entertainment? Are you comfortable with its affections? Is the world comfortable with you? Is your life and your speech and your conduct completely non-offensive? The life of the true believer is going to be offensive to the world. Not because we're good enough, not because we're better, not because we're smarter, but because Christ is good enough. Because the Spirit of God and the, the, the Word of God are working out righteousness in us. And slowly, over time, we begin to see that we just don't fit this world anymore. This is to be the place where we fit in. This is to be the place where we are to be comfortable and content and at peace. I would share one last thought with you, if you'll permit me. Um, it's easy to read Ephesians, uh, the end of Ephesians and the armor of God, and, and to get this battle mentality of life, that I need a helmet and a sword and a shield, and all of that is true. But you know what's interesting is the context of Ephesians is as we go out into the world, there are flaming and fiery darts of the enemy. As we go out into the world, there is a battle raging on, a battle for the souls of people. And the, the two ends of that is heaven and hell. And we have to do our part in taking that message out into the world. And we need to be armored up as we go out into a hostile world that doesn't love us. Do you know what? Paul uh, does not present us with that imagery as, as how we are to behave in the church. I think Peter does when he tells us to each one of you clothe yourselves in humility. And the context of 1 Peter is inside the church. We clothe ourselves with humility. I can't help but to think the picture Peter has in mind there is of Jesus taking off his cloak getting a wash basin and a towel and washing the disciples' feet after they've just argued about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the one who is the greatest clothes himself in humility and, and does a lowly job, a servant's job, a job that was even below uh, Jewish servants. When we go out into the world, we go out into a hostile world. We take a message that the world hates, and hopefully we take lifestyles that the world hates. In word and in deed, our lives stand as an indictment against the sin that the world loves and calls them to trust in a Savior who lived on the other side of the planet 2,000 years ago, who lived and died and rose again and reigns supreme and eternal. But here, here we clothe ourselves with humility. Here we make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We especially do good to the household of faith. Let's pray. Lord, give, give life 
to, to our, our, our dead bodies, our dead lives. Lord, you have, for those who have believed, for those who have trusted you, you have given life to our spirits. But we ask, Lord, that you would, uh, that you would uh, day by day, progressively be giving uh, eternal life, sanctified lives to our lives as well. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from being offensive people. Lord, I, I would be so bold as to pray that we wouldn't take up things like uh, divisive things in the world that are not matters of eternity, whether it be uh, politics, whether it be elections, whether it be preferences or other things, and, and stand those up in, in offensive ways that remove the opportunity for us to share the gospel. What I'm, I'm certainly not saying that we cannot be involved in those things on some level. But Lord, let us not use eternal things or even temporal things in offensive ways. Let us be like Christ who lived humbly and gently and kindly and who spoke the truth. But as we go out into a world that does not like the message that we take to it, we pray first that you would give us great zeal to take the message to it. Lord, let us speak the gospel enough to be offensive to people. But let us live righteous and holy lives as well that that confirm the claims of our mouth. That show repentance. Lord, the world doesn't need to see our perfection. They need to see your perfection. We want to be repenting and at peace and unified with one another. We want to love one another. We want to do good to all people, especially the household of the faith. And we want you to magnify that out from us and and use it to give credence to the gospel and call sinners to yourself and to save people. Lord, we want it all to be for your glory and for the good of those around us. Lord, let us understand that we are blessed that it's an it's a evidence of our salvation when the world hates us, that we should not be surprised by that, but that we would be surprised when the world doesn't. But we know that's not going to be the case everywhere we go, but it will be the case some places. Would you make us day by day progressively more and more uncomfortable in this life and longing more and more for the next? that we might not only be prepared for what you have for us in eternity, but that we might be of great spiritual good to those around us in this life. So Lord, we ask that you would do much in us to glorify yourself, that we would love you above all things, that we would love one another, that we would not rise up against one another in, in pride or, or other, other ways to assault one another, but that we would live humbly, and peacefully and joyfully together for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.